non-human animals across the board from, you know, a cockroach to an elephant to a chimpanzee and everything in between are still treated as things. And that's not to say that there aren't protections in place, uh, welfare and, and conservation laws and certain things that do have a positive impact on the lives of animals. But it still remains the case that they are things. And, and that has, and similar as it did with humans, it has often brutal real-world consequences. Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, a.k.a. Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our Conservation Tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Kevin, my friend, welcome to the Conservation Tribe. Great. It's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. I'm excited for this one. I'm going to be talking about non-human animal rights. This is a topic that I find really intriguing. This is obviously a conservation podcast, but animal rights and, and conservation are linked together. The objectives of each aren't necessarily always aligned, but there is a connection there so i'm super excited to kind of dive in but before we do that can you please uh, give the podcast a little intro on who you are and what you do sure thing uh, my name is kevin schneider i live in uh, brooklyn new york that's where i'm speaking from today uh, i'm an attorney and the executive director since uh been about five years now and um i've been involved for five years before that as a volunteer throughout law school because about 12 years ago or so it kind of dawned on me that there was such a thing as animal law, that you could go to law school, you could actually make a career out of pursuing rights uh, for the environment, as well as specifically for animals. So I'm interested to talk a little bit about that divide, so to speak, that you talk about between you know conservation and animal rights. Um, so I've been at it for five years full time. Uh, I work in a legal capacity, but also day to day kind of management, um, just the everyday uh, tasks of uh, running a nonprofit, a fairly, fairly small, but still growing nonprofit at the Non-Human Rights Project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So on the Non-Human Rights Project, can you expand a, a little bit more on that and potentially the differences compared to other projects that are similar or seemingly similar? Sure. So uh, a lot of it is, I think, kind of captured in how we describe ourselves. So we don't refer to ourselves as an animal rights organization. You know, if you go to our website, uh, nonhumanrights.org, or look at our social media, you'll see we speak in terms of uh, being a civil rights organization uh, whose clients are non-human animals. And that's an important distinction um, for us because what we're talking about, we think, and what makes us different in the United States, although other groups are certainly working at it, is that we're pursuing real legal rights. So in the same way that a human being or indeed a corporation, or any other number of entities that can be rights bearers in the law, we are trying to extend that to at least uh, the first non-human animal. And we can talk a bit m more about how we you know, think through that process, what we think is going to be the most effective and fruitful process in terms of what species to um, begin with when making these arguments. Um, but that, in, in a nutshell, is what we're set up to do, because for the last 2,000 plus years, at least, for as long as this idea of 
just to, to summarize this idea of being a thing or a person in our legal system and in a lot of legal systems around the world, there is this really kind of arbitrary binary that has developed over the millennia um, that you can be a thing or you can be a person. And this is tied up with all sorts of ideas, including the great chain of being and human exceptionalism. And, and, and for most of its history, this idea of you know thing, person, it didn't, per, personhood didn't extend to most human beings. And when I say person, that doesn't mean human being like it does when we talk about it in everyday speech. And when you're talking about it in a legal sense, using it as a legal term of art, we call it, it just means having the capacity for a legal right or a legal duty. So that's why it makes sense for a corporation to be a person. Uh, or in New Zealand, more, more interesting to me, uh, you have rivers that are now not, uh, persons. Mm. Uh, or if you look to uh, Colombia, a couple of years ago, high court there declared that their portion of the Amazon rainforest is a legal person. So who can be a legal person is not uh, a product of biology. It's it's much more complex than that. It's, it's really uh, public policy. And at the end of the day, it's about, is this a, an entity, a being, or whatever you want to call it, that deserves legal recognition, that deserves to have fundamental interests that can be protected? Because it is... Uh, it's kind of easy to talk in the abstract. And a lot of people, if you ask them, will agree. Yeah, animals should have rights. Animals do have rights. But as a legal matter, as a lawyer, as lawyers, we know that, in fact, they don't. And if you try to bring even what should be a relative slam dunk case for an animal, as, as we have, I think, uh, for example, for a captive chimpanzee who's alone for, for decades or a captive elephant who's alone for decades, you would think that should be a slam dunk. That should be illegal. How is it to take this high? What we who we know to be a highly social creature and keep them in a condition of essentially solitary confinement. The fact of the matter is that that's legal under welfare laws, even under things like the Endangered Species Act that seek to kind of preserve these. I kind of think of it as it's almost like the Pokemon approach. You want to keep some version of them around, but you're not really so concerned about whether they're able to live like a real chimpanzee. So if you can imagine like a human, if you kind of kept one in confinement, solitary confinement, and that was your idea of, you know, what a human is. Uh, yeah. It's not that different when you go to a zoo and you look at a, a single elephant, a single or solitary chimpanzee or a very small group. You know, you're seeing a very similar thing. And we say that not because just because we feel it to be morally right, but because we have science that we believe makes it unassailably true, uh, including from Jane Goodall, who's one of our founding board members. Legend. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I had the honor of meeting her last year uh, for her 85th birthday, which we held at L.A. City Hall, which was really fun because we're trying to, you know, also push into the legislative sphere while we're doing this work in the courts and trying to, you know, get the judges to grapple with this idea that, you know, even one animal can have a right. Because, you know, a lot of people are relatively shocked, I think, to find out that even their beloved dogs and cats don't have rights. At the end of the day, they're still things. They're still property. Yeah. And you can see case after case that says, you know, we know there's a lot of sympathy. I love dogs, but my hands are tied here. The law rights. says that an animal has is a thing. Real quick on the the legal thing. So I'm quite interested in that that the difference between a legal thing and, and a legal person. It's kind of funny that, you know, a legal person is the thing with the rights. And then everything outside of that is, you know, is a thing and therefore doesn't have the rights. Um, but when we're speaking about animals, is it all animals that are, you know, classed or have that status of a, a thing? Is that, you know, applicable to all animals? Yeah, it, it is applicable to every animal, every animal in the world. 
almost yeah. every animal. There's some interesting exceptions that have developed over just the last couple of years. Species or like individual animals, like the species as a whole, or both. Really, oh, both. Okay, so interesting. On the species level and the individual level. So this this whole idea of being a thing or being a person. These are the only real options that the law has given us, broadly speaking, for 2,000 years. And it goes back to Roman law, these ideas of the great chain of being. I mean, if you look at that, it was humans were at the, well, nearly at the top, just under God and maybe some spirits and different things. But it wasn't all humans, right? Of course, it was males. It was property-owning males and white males. And for the longest time, and only up until, you know, 150, 200 years ago, women, children, Native Americans, other indigenous peoples, and certainly in most viscerally, the most brutal uh, example of this, uh, illustration of this is slavery. You know, Africans taken as slaves and brought to various parts of the world and treated legally and in every sense as chattel. They were referred to as such as things, as property, be bought and sold and, you know, brutalized at whim. And so there are real consequences. It's, it's not to say that, you know, simply being referred to as a person kind of magically changes all that. But the, in, a, in many ways, the, the fights over expanding rights to all of these groups, which have been very much hard fought in not just courtrooms, but outside of them and legislatures and streets and sometimes things like the Civil War, you finally have seen the expansion of personhood to all of humanity. And, and that's written into things like the UN Declaration on Human Rights. So it's taken now as a bedrock principle that every human being is a legal person. Uh, but of course, they're not the only persons. And so for all that time, or most a lot of that time, when many human beings were not persons, uh, corporations, churches, you know, associations, guilds, all of these different things were in some ways treated as persons. And what that means is, of course, they can't, uh, they don't have human rights, but they can own property, they can sign contracts, they can sue, they can be sued. You know, there are real sort of structural you know, there's a reason why, you know, the East India Company, British East India Company was was created. Uh, this, these ideas, they were really about how do you make most efficient this exploitation in a lot of ways and, and, and trade. And that's a whole other debate and conversation mm -hmm. about what the merits and problems with that are. But as a fundamental legal principle, it, it doesn't it's not foreign to the law to think about an entity that is not a human having rights and interests and, you know, having lawyers in there to argue on his or her behalf. So while now every animal still remains uh, a thing, that's why we talk often about uh, our founder, Steve Wise, has a, a TED Talk that I recommend to folks who are interested in learning a bit more about the kind of common law history of this. But we refer to it often as a, a legal wall that separates, used to separate many humans, as I was just describing, a lot of them being not treated as persons and some of them being persons. But now we finally have every human on the person side of the wall, but non-human animals across the board from, you know, a cockroach to an elephant to a chimpanzee and everything in between are still treated as things. And that's not to say that there aren't protections in place, uh, welfare and, and conservation laws and certain things that do have a positive impact on the lives of animals, but it still remains the case that they are things. And, and that has, and similar as it did with humans, it has often brutal real world consequences uh in the case of many species they can be you know rounded up and killed with really no justification at all other than someone who they happen to be on someone's property who wants to do that or 
They can be like an elephant or a chimpanzee in, in the cases that we've brought so far in New York and Connecticut, you know, confined by themselves without others of their own kind for decades. And that can be perfectly legal as long as you're giving them their adequate amount of food and water and, you know, they're not festering with open wounds and, you know, you see to their basic veterinary needs. You know, our approach really is is not about criminalizing, per se, human behavior. It's about taking at least some animals off the kind of off the menu entirely by giving them rights and, and basically um, not making it possible to do the things to them that which we think are violations of their fundamental rights. So, for example, an elephant like Happy at the Bronx Zoo, we've been fighting her case uh, for going on two years. And we're currently on appeal. And uh, it's a very promising case in a lots of ways that we can talk about a bit more. But she's at a very much a well-regarded zoo. But the, it's still the case from our perspective and from the experts, the world-renowned elephant experts who support our case, that she shouldn't be there. Um, and the only way to get her out is to get the zoo either to agree or to persuade a court that she has a liberty right. She has essentially a right not to be held in confinement, uh, similar to uh, humans, uh, and that she should go to a sanctuary because, you know, sadly, she can't just go back to the wild. Mm -hmm. It's a very complex thing. She was taken from Thailand, you know, 50 years ago. And she was named Happy because this is quite tragic. They captured seven young elephants at once and decided to name them after the uh, Snow White Seven Dwarves. So they were all kind of dispersed to various circuses. And she ended up at a zoo uh, here in New York, the Bronx Zoo. And, you know, this is one elephant, right? That might be asked. This is, you know, how does this really change the bigger picture and, you know, where elephants are native, where they're still being killed in horrific numbers and hunted. And it doesn't have a direct impact. That's that's true. But we firmly believe that the process of, of fighting that through, we think, is is productive ultimately for not just protecting these same species in the wild, but uh, ultimately arming you know, conservation groups of, mm -hmm. of all sorts with strategies and, you know, arguments that can be applied uh, you know, I mentioned the Colombian uh, Amazon. Uh, it was declared to be a legal person. And so we cite that in our briefs and our legal papers. And, you know, we want to as much as possible encourage this because I think that there really needs to be and should be this, if not coordination, uh, at least, you know, awareness that these approaches can really ultimately lead to the same benefit. That is, you know, protection of their habitat and through that protection of our own uh, livelihoods as, as human beings. Considering, you know, this is kind of a very new idea, is there friction from a judge's perspective to be that first person that makes that change? You know, is there friction of, you know, I don't want to be the first to be like, yes, they have rights. Is that a thing? Well, actually, yeah, it's funny you say that because the very first judge we went in front of in December 2013 was a court in upstate New York, this small town, and it was on behalf of a chimpanzee named Tommy who's been held in solitary captivity for you know decades. He was a former performing chimp. He was in he was in a film with Matthew Broderick in the 80s about the space program, uh, I think uh, Project X, I think it was called, and uh, you know he ends up in this basically trailer yard kind of small cage. And the judge, uh, you know, this is the first time ever that, you know, in the United States that anyone, you know, had sought a habeas corpus petition on behalf of an animal, chimpanzee or any animal, or as we say, a non-human animal, because we too are animals, animals as yeah. humans, which some people <laughs> think sometimes. And that is a fundamental issue as well. 
is this, you know, we consider ourselves outside of that when that is. That's right. Case, that, yeah. And we can talk a little bit about how that's a lingering issue that we, it doesn't always come up directly, but you know that it's lurking just beneath the surface and every, you know, the judge's mm. minds and everyone's mm. like, they're thinking about these issues that go quite deep, kind of deep, deeper than the law in a lot of ways and kind of psychologically and culturally, like what makes us unique, what makes us special, are we special? And the law really does reflect that, you know, yeah. and that's that's the law's way of, of doing that is by saying you know, we're persons and everything else are, you know, things. So, yeah, we the very first judge, he's in the middle of, you know, upstate New York. We, we expect he might be somewhat hostile to this idea. But instead, and, and you can read the opinion, it's on our uh, everything that go, comes down in any of our lawsuits goes up on our website. He said that, you know, I would I'm an animal lover. I would love to sign this order. I would love to make. I would love to be the first one to do this, but I, I just can't make this leap of faith. And, um, mm. you know, that was quite shocking to get, you know, what was pretty. And, you know, that's OK, because we didn't courts. Generally, you have three levels. So you, you have the trial court and then the appeals court and then like the Supreme Court. So we, we always knew that this question has to get up ultimately to a Supreme Court in a state within a state uh, for us to really you know, get the victory that we that we want. And it, you know, has to really be kind of blessed by the highest court for it to really have the most impact. Hmm. So we weren't totally surprised by that, but we were, you know, encouraged. But then <laughs> we very quickly have run into other judges who have been, some of them, uh, rather just hostile, frankly, um, and others that have almost just been amused, others that have been really very sympathetic so they've kind of run the you whole get the full spectrum spectrum yeah yeah but one of the kind of main reasons that has been brought against us by the courts so far as to why animals cannot have rights because they they have so far you know we've lost every case that we've brought at least on paper you know we don't we don't see them as kind of losses rather we see them as part of a broader strategic mm, kind of mm. push but that being said, you know, a loss is, I guess, a loss. So we've had courts tell us that in order to be a person, you have to be able to take on duties and responsibilities. So this whole idea comes from the uh, you know political philosophy idea of the social contract, uh, this idea that in order to have rights, you take on certain duties in society. And you might hear that and think, well, yeah, that makes sense. But when you start to really look at that, it's, it not only falls apart, but it, it's, a, it's a really dangerous idea, I think, in a lot of ways. For one thing, uh, you know, children, uh, various human beings who might have a, a mental incapacity or are very old, have something like an Alzheimer's or patient or something like this, they can't take on legal duties. You know, they can't help be held legally responsible for their actions because they don't have what's called, you know, capacity in the law. Um, you know, the, the capacity to, say, for example, commit a crime. That's why you can't charge like a two-year-old if they shoot you because they don't have legal capacity. But we don't take away their rights, right? They still have rights. You can't eat babies because they don't can't take on legal duties, thankfully. Mm. That's one way it's dangerous, but also on a kind of deeper level, this idea that, you know, our rights come from essentially the state is, uh, is, a, is an idea that is very much not in line with uh, how people usually think of a liberal democracy and the founding of it. You know, the idea is that, you know, people have inherent rights and you can see this in our own Declaration of Independence or any number of other documents. It's not the document that's creating the rights. It's it's recognizing those rights. And so there's a really important difference between essentially nature by having put you together in a certain way gives you rights. And, you know, this kind of goes to a question that we get sometimes uh, or we get a lot. 
why do you focus on these particular species? So as I mentioned, we've brought cases for elephants and chimpanzees, but we also talk um, publicly and have for years about all the species of great apes. So there's four of them, chimpanzees, orangutans, bonobos, and gorillas, dolphins and whales, so all cetaceans, and um, elephants, Asian and African elephants. And we've also talked about uh, African gray parrots. Uh, the reason we talk about these, you might wonder why these particular species. It's not because we argue or believe or even think that they have, you know, in the whole million or plus however many species, well, the ones that haven't gone extinct yet because of us, you know, among them, uh, they stand out as being demonstrably what we call autonomous. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that through tons of scientific study of their behavior and their, their brain structure, anatomical structure, lots of other things you, you can read about in our papers and the expert affidavits from people like Jane Goodall and you know other renowned experts, is that uh, these species are, as I mentioned, autonomous. And what that means is they have a sense of themselves. They can reflect on their past and plan for their future in detail. If we're looking at like elephants, for example, they are known to grieve over their dead. They are known to uh, congregate and do things that have been described as planning, as discussing. If they're at a you know fork in the road, a proverbial one or a real one, you know they're maybe looking for water. They might have a debate over where is it more likely we're actually going to get water if we follow you for 10, 20 miles, right? And that has been observed to be something that's worked out. That a similar process has been observed in uh, some whale species. When they're considering where they should go to look for food, they will have what you could very fairly describe as a little mini Congress, and mm -hmm. people will give their points and their arguments, and then they appear to deliberate and something like vote, and then make a decision. Sometimes they'll split, and it's not to say that these characteristics, as I think impressive as they are, are morally relevant per se. Yeah. But legally, the fact they of are. the matter is that you know, we're trying to convince the courts to make this extension. They already claim to care about this idea of autonomy. So we go in and say, okay, you care about autonomy in, in the body of a human. Science now tells us that autonomy is not unique to human beings. And so you have to at least begin extending yeah, the right. Or else change the law. Well, you're undermining your own you're legal undermining... principles. You're, you're doing all this bad stuff. I mean, we don't really have much in the way of threats against them. <laughs> but... Yeah, but I mean, when you look at it, you're like, if you say this and then don't apply it in all cases, then then isn't that word it's something else potentially like it's you're you 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 might be a lawyer uh, in in waiting because you've hit on the kind of second argument that follows that is equality so we talk about equality in a very similar way to cases for example uh, when women were not allowed to practice law even if they were very capable past the bar you can go back and find these cases and that is what we can see now is a clear violation of equality why because for every relevant reason, characteristic, this person should be able to carry on the practice of the law. The only reason you're not letting her do it is because she happens to be a woman. And that's after lots of fighting and getting this patriarchal worldview to sort of retreat a little bit, at least, you know, kind of fought back to acknowledge that, yeah, that is, uh, there's no good reason for discriminating. And the same is true um, when it comes to race discrimination, segregation, even though it was and continues to be a struggle and a battle as a legal matter. These same notions of, of equality have been used to do things like end the segregation of schools because it's a similar, you know, kind of line of argument that the characteristics 
that you're claiming to be relevant and, and should justify this difference of treatment, it turns out is not relevant. And so in a very similar way, we argue that, you know, you guys claim to care about autonomy and the free will, liberty. Um, well, here is a non-human species who really checks off all those boxes. What are you going to do? And so far, you know, the judges have tried to wiggle their way out of it, say, go to the legislature, go bring this to them, which, you know, is not entirely unreasonable. But we think, you, you know, the judges have a duty to take on this question in a similar way that they did when there were challenges to uh, extend rights to slaves and finally mm -hmm. make them not slaves or women or Native Americans. And, you know, those were all resisted in a similar way when those were brought. Uh, you can actually go back in the U.S. Attorney General in a case, a habeas corpus case, seeking to free uh, a chief standing bear, a Ponca chief, who was being held in captivity. The U.S. government argued in you know the 1860s or 70s, if I'm not mistaken, that um, you know he's an Indian, he has no rights, he's like a beast of the field, and you know it, this used to be just prevailing normal legal opinion. You could say this in polite society, and that was normal, and you know, this, it just goes to show, I think, that much like the common law that we talk about, it's it's supposed to evolve over time. What what was okay and justifiable yesterday? Well, today we, we know better, so we're supposed to do better. And that's, uh, in essence, what we uh, argue to the judges. Yeah, so this idea of this thing evolving legally and also these, I guess, morals, when you, when you match the evolution of morality and also the evolution of laws, is the law evolution kind of like a delayed reflection of the, the moral evolution? Like there's like this period of time where they need to kind of look at it and then they adjust, but there's this period of time where there's this lag in between. It's a really interesting question because I think you can find examples of both. So, both. and this is something that there's literature out there on that I'm not super familiar with, but there can be cases where the law leads society or there are cases where it's the inverse. Um, just really quick on the, so the clients. So the reason for, you know, having a small selection of, you know, species to be clients. So you've got on your website, chimpanzees, elephants, and potentially orangutans, gorillas, bonobos, dolphins, and whales. A key reason for, you know, having these animals is this, this concept of autonomy. And that's important because autonomy in your legal framework is already considered to be an important thing. And you can prove through science that these animals have that autonomy. So is that, that's why that rationale is why you'd kind of pick those animals as opposed to, you know, let's say a snail or a chicken or something like that at the moment is yeah, that, that right. autonomy and is a big one. Yeah. Because it's something that the judges already believe in. They so already believe in. We already have a kind of uphill battle, as you might imagine, sometimes yeah. because of all of these, you know, there's cultural baggage, so many different factors, economics. So we, we kind of have our work cut out for us as it is. But we, we always stress that autonomy is a sufficient but not a necessary condition. What we mean by that is that we think that a, if a being is provably autonomous, like the ones we're talking about, that should entitle them to at least certain legal rights and recognition and the ability, to, you know, for a third party to exercise those rights if they're being violated. But we don't say that it should stop there. We don't, you know, we don't make an argument ever that it should or has to stop there. But there is a tendency, I think, to sometimes talk about animal rights as a, just a broad matter, a general matter, as if there's kind of one set of rules or, <laughs> you know, kind of a bill of rights that would fit 
all the animals. To me, that's just so anti, like, unscientific. <laughs> the idea that a mouse or and a chimpanzee are going to like fit under the same. So part of what we're doing, as I see it, is really embracing science and not uh, kind of leaving that out of the conversation when we're talking about expanding fundamental rights. And I think it, it makes a big difference, certainly in how we, I think the reception we've gotten, the, um, you know, there's an HBO documentary about us that came out a few years ago, which, you know, covers the cases that we've been talking about, or um, not so much Happy's case, because that's more recent. You know, we, we get covered in, you know, Wall Street Journal and Washington Post and The Economist and all these like very serious publications, along with, you know, all sorts of great, you know, smaller outlets like your own. And, um, you know, and we find that there's a real receptiveness to this. And as I mentioned, you know, judges around the world picking up on it. All of this tells us that, you know, there is some, you know, there's a logic to it. I know you touched on it before, but I want to quickly ask a question that was submitted by Erica on Instagram. And that's at E-R-I-K-A underscore M-A-R-I. And she wants to know, what is the difference between non-human rights and animal welfare? This can be somewhat of a tricky one. And for us, it's a very important distinction because whenever we file a case, we're in court in front of the judges. We have to stress to them, this is not an animal welfare case. You know, this is an elephant's rights case. This is a chimpanzee rights case. The reason we do that is not because we don't care about welfare. We don't value it as principle. It's because, you know, welfare, animal welfare, animal welfare laws, animal cruelty laws, they've existed for you know about 150 years. And they were very much a necessary step. I think before that, you just had horrendous cruelty just happening in the streets, carriage horses being beaten to death. That's actually what inspired the first uh, you know, welfare laws here in New York uh, was a, a gentleman witnessing that, uh, you know, groups like the ASPCA. And so that is and remains, I think, a very important structure. It is available at least to kind of moderate the worst abuses of animals, especially in, in some industrial settings, not all. Uh, that's a whole other conversation about how, at least here in most countries, the agricultural practices basically exempt from a lot of these uh, rules. But welfare is never rights. And welfare, when you really look at what the justification is for it, it is, of course, about protecting the animals in in a very real sense, but the real heart of it is about protecting human morality. Because again, at the end of the day, we're talking about you know regulations, for example, that regulate how slaughter happens, or regulates how you can keep an animal that you're preparing for slaughter for, or for experimentation. And these are really pretty bare minimum things. Uh, for example, Happy, she's been at the Bronx Zoo for 40 years and has been alone for the last 13 years without any other elephants just very cruel for an elephant on about an acre of land. There's like a suburban backyard. And, you know, the welfare laws are completely okay with that. There's not a violation of the welfare laws that we can see. And that to us is the problem. The fact that the welfare laws are silent as to something which really should be in 2020, we think, something that is on, kind of on its face unlawful or should be unlawful to keep a species like an elephant who, with all that we know about them recognize themselves in a mirror mm. at least some of them can happy was the first elephant shown to be able to do that and so we can never really hope with maybe some exceptions to ever get happy out of the bronx zoo with welfare laws the other problem being that they are broadly speaking criminal laws which can only be enforced by the state so this whole other struggle there of convincing the 
say, attorney general or district attorney that it's worth his time to pursue a welfare case against a powerful politically connected zoo, for example, the Bronx Zoo, if we're using Happy's case as an example. And so for us, the only way we can get her out of there, others like her out of situations like that, is to have courts recognize or legislatures recognize that they can at least have this right. And, you know, that is a theoretically completely different thing than welfare because and it really comes down to this personhood idea, whether you have the capacity for rights or you don't have the capacity for rights. And welfare just doesn't lead to the capacity for rights. Um, I just want to quickly touch on this idea of language and the language that we use as humans and how that potentially impedes, you know, our progress towards animal rights and animal welfare. Like even in the title of your project, it's not animal rights project, it's non-human rights project. And even in just common conversation, we may refer to, to animals as something that's separate from us. We may refer to them as, you know, it's and things this is kind of probably outside of the legal conversation, but just from your personal opinion, how does this language, I guess, influence this sort of progress for, towards animal rights and animal welfare? Like the more we use this language that promotes the separation, surely that would be a hindrance to making these changes. Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a subtle thing. And I think some people sort of, well, some people will roll their eyes at anything, I guess. So some people do roll their eyes at that. They think it's, it's all semantics. It's funny because this plays out in a public way pretty frequently with respect to the Associated Press AP style guide. You know, there's been a fight to have them not refer to all animals as it's, just like you mentioned. And, you know, some people might say, oh, that's like person. You know, what what does it matter what we call them? It's just treat them nice. Let's just all kind of what, what are we making a big deal out of here? These are just words. But the fact of the matter is that words really do matter. And I think in ways that we don't even usually fully understand because they, you know, represent ideas. They represent, for example, legal structures or just kind of old biases that have been around for a long time. And, you know, as we're seeing now with the, you know, all the fallout from the just legacy of brutal segregation and police violence in our country towards black Americans in particular, the kind of reckoning with that, you know, it shows that these these issues are not static, that there needs to be this kind of constant fighting and, and pushback that's happening. And, you know, I think that when it comes to really changing the way that we relate to the natural world in a more, you know, for the positive, we have to kind of grab some ownership of language. And that's a big part of what we do is, you know, working with media, working with, uh, you know, what if it's press or um, through film to kind of normalize these ideas. So I, I've noticed myself, because in the scientific literature, it was, it's not unusual to talk about non-human animals or non-human primates. But in everyday speech, you wouldn't really see that. But I noticed that a lot of people use it now. Um, even talking about personhood, I, I notice it might not be about us at all, but they're talking about personhood with respect to animals or the mm. environment. I've noticed and, that as you well. Know, that, it makes a difference because I think it's, it's attributed to Gandhi, but this idea of first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, and then they fight you. And then you win. And I think it broadly holds true because mm. it's not so often that we see people. I've, I've seen the laughing phase and the ignoring <laughs> phase. And now I think we're pretty well into the fighting phase in a lot of ways, which Heck yeah. I think is good. I think we are. When I ask questions like that, it, it makes always come back to one of my favorite quotes by Richard Dawkins, which is, 
we admit that we are like apes, but we seldom realize that we are apes. And that quote is such a good quote because, yeah, it just goes back to this idea of us being separate from, from nature and what are the consequences of, you know, thinking that way. So, yeah, I think there is a mindset shift that needs to happen. But I think we're, we're trending that way, I think, as a species. I think that's my hunch anyway. Is that your hunch? I, I hope. <laughs> I you're less optimistic <laughs> no i i mean i am because i think we have to be because you know what other kind of in a real way what other choice do you have but i do think that you know just changing the laws of course not everything but it does have a big part to play i think and you know i think it can lead the culture and it can be led by the culture a little bit so that's what we're trying to tap into but certainly with the hope that it really does give us a foothold to you know improve the world and cut back on these the worst of the excesses and problems that we see out there yeah there's a, there's a lot of problems that we need to fix one other thing that i like about talking to people like you is this idea that all these different disciplines and professions if you care about animals or nature you could be a lawyer you could be a doctor you could be an architect and still contribute to this movement uh, and that's one thing that i'm very passionate about uh, is this idea that anyone can contribute. You don't, you don't need to be a scientist. You don't, you, know, you don't have to be a field biologist working on the ground to contribute. Obviously, that's really important. But like yourself, you can be a lawyer and make a difference. So I like, I like that idea. Yeah, totally, totally. And um, I encourage everyone who's interested to go to our website, sign up for our email list. You know, we put everything out there as it happens. Uh, like I said, we've got an active case now on behalf of Happy. So we're excited to go back to court in the next uh, two or three months and uh, continue the process in New York. But also, you know, we work around the world to try to help lawyers that want to do similar stuff, expand rights, oftentimes using the same kind of common law legal ideas that we've all inherited from England, but, you know, not restricted to that by any means. And so I encourage folks to sign up there and if, uh, you know, reach out if you're interested in volunteering or uh, if you just want to share our stuff on social media, we're pretty active on all the usual places uh, under non-human rights or non-human rights project. And the website is www.nonhumanrights.org. And uh, that's where you can sign up and read more about uh, the cases we do. And yeah, do get in touch. We want to hear ideas. Uh, we want, you know, we work with creative people. We work with other lawyers. We work with really anybody who wants to contribute in some way because it's very much not just a, a legal thing or a political thing. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a social thing and it needs to be become part of these larger movements, have a place there, but also really continue to stand on its own. Yeah. So all these, I'll put all these links in the, in the podcast show notes and also on, on social media and whatnot couple more questions to go we mentioned that this is i guess step one of your journey and there's many there's, there's many steps for this journey but what is the, the ultimate angle i guess what are you working towards what does that look like so this is kind of a non-answer funny answer but our short-term goal is just to break through what i describe as this legal wall that, wall. that separates all humans from all non-humans in other words makes it possible for, we love the idea that all humans have rights. <laughs> no argument with that. <laughs> but our argument, why we can't stop there. We have to at least begin. And, and the other thing is, you know, just having, uh, say, if you're an elephant, chimpanzee, you know, just being a person doesn't mean that you're suddenly entitled to all these rights. You could be a person with just one right, you know, the right not to be held alone in a box. And so 
You have that the might capacity. be the only real right that you need. You know, you don't might yeah. you don't need a right to drive or marry or all these other things that we might consider to be, you know, that are relevant to humans. Mm, okay. And just quickly on that, <laughs> this idea of rights that are relevant to the species, I think mm. kind of that's important. Like when we when I, I talk about animal rights to other people, sometimes they may be like, oh, okay, so you want a caterpillar to have the same rights as us humans. And it's not that simple. Like if we had, like in theory, um, you'd have a set of rights that were relevant to the needs and the interests of, of each species, right? But obviously that is pretty complex and complicated to do. But the idea is, you know, that it, the rights are predicated on, you know, the needs and the, the interests of the species. That's right. That's yeah. right. And um, so for us, you know, we've thought pretty hard about this. And again, looking at chimpanzees and elephants, but I think this applies probably quite broadly to lots of species. You know, you think, what are the really, truly relevant interests that, that they have? And among them, what really stands out to us and similar to us humans, uh, an interest in liberty or autonomy, that is, you know, not being held or confined, which seems pretty obvious when we think about it. You know, does anyone... We've all been in confinement. Do you like it? Do you want to? Do you want to be your whole life that way? Yeah, then you might really. imagine how you know some of these animals feel. And what was the second part? <laughs> oh, just just this idea that yeah, I don't know. The, just the rights. Uh, right, the complexity. It's the complexity. The complexity. Yeah, that kind of goes back to how we really do uh, utilize science and try to use it as. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing I think about because science, you know, can't alone dictate policy, right? It doesn't, it's amoral, I think, in a lot of ways, at least is how we tend to think about it. But it sure can help, right? And I think climate policy is a really obvious example. You have this fight over science. What is science? What is real? Climate change deniers, for example, the fact that they can still really impede policy and are currently doing that in a big way all over the world. You know, that's one battleground, I think, where science is obviously central but is right now not being allowed to properly inform policy the way that it should and i think with respect to um, what we're talking about non-human animals it uh is guided largely by the same principles and like you said it, it it will be it will be complex each species or even within the species could have a very different set of interests but you know if you look at corporate law like you know it's insanely complex and for what you know sometimes not even really good reasons we're okay with that so i think that this idea that you know we we, we can deal with complexity we just have yeah. to sort of grow up and <laughs> we and can't be like this is too hard running from it i think is a big it's sort of one of the underlying lessons for us is yeah you guys we guys gotta as a species we have to grow up and you know let science uh we gotta let science in let it's science kind of in. Part of it. it can't tell us the answers but it can you know, as a mindset, as an approach, it, you know, has so much, I think, to, to, to offer us. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's about, oh, in my mind, science is about trying to know what you know. And the things that we do know that we know, we should be using that information to inform the things that we do. But there are also things outside of that. And I'm always intrigued with, you know, I'm a philosophical kind of guy and I always ask these kind of philosophical type questions and moral questions and stuff like that. But I think that's important as well because philosophy, in my mind, is like seeking the right questions. And science, conversely, is kind of roughly speaking, is like seeking the right answers. And you kind of need to combine the two. You need to be getting the right answers to the right questions. And again, that adds another layer of complexity, but that's just what it is. 
life is complex. Just that's just how it is. We need to deal with it. We had a, um, and you might enjoy this, but so we have, you know, I mentioned some of these outside like lobby groups that came in and tried have come in and, you know, made arguments against expanding rights to any animals, non-human animals. But we also have folks who are coming in support of it. And one of them is a group of, uh, well, the first brief was 17 philosophers that all jointly wrote a brief arguing that, yes, these chimpanzees are legal persons and, you know, all these reasons why. And, you know, it's it's a really fascinating but kind of difficult read because, yeah, you know, these issues, like you said, you know, they do go very deep, but there's there's real consequences to, you know, the courts, you know, society at large continuing to bury their head in the sand. I think, you know, that's what's driving so much of the destruction of our planet is that we just don't want to deal with some pretty fundamental things. One of them being the fact, you know, that we're animals, that we are mortals, that we are like the rest of animals. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we're all going to have the same rights or the same interests or that necessarily life as we know it has to change a whole lot, but maybe it does, right? Uh, But that's not to say that it's a one-size-fits-all. It's to say that we need to begin, you know, listening to what science is telling us, that we're not the only species that have an interest in our rights, in our, uh, you know, fundamental interest in liberty and freedom, and use that as as a principle to continue evolving the law in ways that I really do think it's hard to kind of lay out exactly how, but ultimately is very much a positive for humans as well. Because hundred <laughs> percent, yeah, we all. But even in a legal sense, that we all, there's a certain there's a harm to having an irrational law. Like the law right now is when it comes to these animals is irrational, and it's hard to pin down why how that hurts people. But I, I really do think that you know, and in a lot of ways, it, it really does. Mm, like when you mentioned this slippery slope argument, you know, the potential slippery slope consequences if we go down this path i always i think that applies if we continue down this path like this could potentially be a slippery slope as well um i could talk for hours on this to be honest so we might have to do another a follow-up podcast sometime down the track yeah when we get our next uh you know action in the case i'm happy to come back and give an update and let let you know what what's new (laughs) yeah 100 percent. i mean it's this is such a deep and you know kind of new idea for a lot of people so it's it's hard to cover all the things in, in an hour but i think we covered a lot of bases but the the final question is what message or thought or challenge or whatever that you want to leave the listeners of the conservation tribe so um i would i kind of said this before but you know encourage people to well, sort of selfishly follow us and reach out to us and contribute to our effort but in a broader way Find, find ways to make yourself an advocate for those that are, don't have a voice. I think that that, you know, you hear that a lot of, you know, advocating for the voiceless. I, I actually think that, you know, nature does have a voice. Animals do have a voice. We just don't know how to really listen to it, but we're starting to. It, it might be expressing itself in forest fires and destruction and all these flashing red signals that say, you know, hey guys, you're, there's something really wrong here. You know, that's one way of, of, of doing it, but I think that there's, there's lots of ways that we can uh, we can kind of take that and whether it's through social media, doing the kind of thing you're doing creatively, or I really like what you said about, you know, pursuing a, a career path where, you know, it's not maybe central to what you're doing day to day, but um, it's still something that you do as a volunteer or something that you support or something that you, uh, you know, some of these professions like medicine or certainly law can be pretty conservative. So even if you're not even if you're working in the court system and you happen to be, um, you know, sympathetic to to these kind of views, 
yeah, that can be a big help, you know. So I think that there are just any number of ways that people can, you know, have themselves be a, uh, a reflector to to get these kind of voices out, um, and, you know. And it's not just uh, animals in the environment, but it's you know unborn humans, right? What kind of world are we creating and leaving for those that are, you know, going to come after us? I think those all need to be voiced. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.